Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of this Mariner's Mirror series on the maritime history of Wales. My name is Ayrwan Abeli Watton and I come from the Brecon Beacons, which is a stunning part of Wales. Today I'm going to be finding out about the work of Cherish, the climate, heritage and environments of reefs, islands and headlands, and about one specific shipwreck of the coast of Wales called the Bronze Bellwreck. Cherish is a fantastic project which brings together four organisations across Wales and Ireland, including the Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historical Monuments of Wales and Aberystwyth University. The project is designed to raise awareness on the past, present and future impacts of climate change and extreme weather on our coastal and oceanic heritage. Here to tell me more about Cherish's important work is Dr Julian Whitewright, the Senior Maritime Investigator at the Royal Commission. Julian is responsible for overseeing the maritime archaeological parts of the National Monuments Record within Wales, as well as advising on marine planning for offshore development. He works closely with colleagues from Cherish, and his archaeological interests cover all boats and ships from the earliest remains to the 20th century. One of the wonderful sites that Cherish has been working on is the Bronze Bellwreck. It was discovered off the coast of Talabont, Ceredigion in 1978 and is very distinctive due to the 65 tonnes of Carrera marble and heavy armaments found on board, as well as the bronze bell for which it was named. Joining me today to tell us more about the bronze bell wreck is Alison James. Alison is a director and project manager at MSDS Marine, with extensive experience in the management of historic shipwreck sites, volunteer involvement, community engagement and education initiatives. This summer, she has been managing work on the Bronze Bell Wreck on behalf of MSDS Marine for a project funded by Cherish, including a recent dive on the site. Let's find out more. Hello, Alison and Julian, and thank you so much for speaking to me today. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hi. So let's get started. Julian, could you tell me a little bit about Cherish and its wonderful projects? Of course. Uh, the, the Cherish project is a, a joint project between um, heritage agencies in Ireland and Wales. It's headed up by the Royal Commission, really, in, in Wales, but it's its own project. And what it really aims to do is to understand climate change and coastal change and the impact that that is having on both sides of the Irish Sea, but particularly on the coasts, headlands, 
islands and reefs, which are all the words that come together to make the, the acronym of, of Cherish. And, and what it's really doing is rather than trying to look at the whole of the Welsh coastline that faces Ireland or the whole of the Irish coastline, which is probably impossible, but to pull out sort of individual case study sites all around the coast um, to demonstrate and understand how our changing climate and things like storminess, for example, are affecting the coast and the heritage sites that are on the coast. Uh, and out of those sites, in certainly on the Welsh side, we've got promontory forts uh, in Pembrokeshire and Anglesey. Uh, we've got a few shipwreck sites, one of which we're going to talk about today, the Bronze Bell site, another one, the Albion, a paddle steamer down in Pembrokeshire. So there's a whole range of different sort of site types, basically, to try and understand what's happening. Oh, very interesting. Um, could you say a little bit more about how climate change does interact with the coastline? Um, any specific examples? Uh, I think most obviously probably through erosion. Um, I think that's the, the thing that probably springs into most people's heads where we think of uh, particularly the, the, one of the cherished sites up at Dinas Dinthley in North Wales on the north of the Thleen Peninsula there where there's an, an enormous uh, Iron Age hill fort, half of which is eroding, you know, the cliff is eroding off into the sea. Uh, and the same at other places where there's seemingly quite a hard cliff, you know, made of big rocks it's very tall and everything but actually most a lot of these monuments are disappearing off into the into the waters the the shipwreck side of it is also you know quite heavily impacted we have increasing storminess i think everyone everyone appreciates that the storms that are always described as being 100 year storms or 50 year storms are seemingly happening every two years or three years uh, and they cause huge sediment movements on the beaches. So things are becoming exposed that we, you know, people have never seen some of the wrecks before. But then also in 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 the sort of the offshore zone, which are much harder to monitor because, you know, we can't see them a lot of the time. How much are things being exposed? How much are things moving around uh, and being moved around? And then I guess the final part of it that we really don't often think about is as the oceans are sort of warming and changing, the extent to which things like the pH levels are changing within the seas and how that impacts on particularly ironwork and wood and this kind of stuff. Of course. Um, and as I understand, with offshore wrecks, they are very time sensitive when it comes to dives, etc. anyway. So it sounds like this hugely exacerbates that issue. Yeah, I think... I guess the public always thinks, or people always think, it, that as archaeologists, we're really excited when a wreck becomes exposed and we can go and work on it and study it. Uh, but in some ways, from the point of view of managing that shipwreck, it's a nightmare because when it's buried under the sand, it's protected, effectively, because the marine organisms that like to eat wood and cause iron to corrode and this kind of thing can't, you know, those chemical processes and biological processes can't happen for the most part under the sand. So, yeah, once something becomes exposed, it, it does become a sort of a... A race against time to record it uh, and understand it and that's true that's as true on the beaches actually as it is in the, the sort of the fully underwater zone. If we move on to the bronze bell wreck then could you tell me a little bit about that Alison? Yeah of course I can um, the wreck was discovered by a local man called Geraint Jones back in the 70s and I was lucky enough to meet him recently and um, he told us all about the discovery 
He regularly metal detected on the beach with his brother. And one day they uncovered a small metal medallion. And um, he was really interested in that, as you would be. And he researched it um, and he, he basically found other examples and uh, could see it was an early 18th century date. And that really led to him going to the beach a lot more often where he started to see wreck material was regularly washing up. Uh, he started mapping it to see if he could work out where it was all coming from. To cut a long story short, he subsequently learned to dive and got involved with some local divers from the KNS group who then went out. They put everything that he sort of worked out in his head into theory, dived on the site and actually located it in 1978. The site was then subsequently designated under the Protection of Rex Act. It got its name from the bronze bell that the divers reportedly found on their very first dive on the site. Uh, I should say as well, just to stop any confusion, it's also sometimes called uh, the Talibont wreck, which comes from its location near the village of Talibont. When they found the site, the team continued to work on the wreck. They recovered material. They even taught themselves conservation skills to conserve the finds that they brought to the surface. We don't really still know the name of the wreck. Um, it's got a large cargo of Carrara marble blocks on it. Um, there are other finds as well that have led archaeologists to believe the wreck is early 18th century and most probably Genoese in origin. There was a map that was published um, by the hydrographer Lewis Morris in 1748, which identifies a Genoese wreck dating to 1709 in the location of our wreck. So the evidence does seem to fit. It is interesting, though, as there's a number of early 16th century guns and a group of 16th century coins that were also found on the wreck, um, which are earlier than the date of the wreck quite significantly. So some people have suggested there may be, in fact, two wrecks on the site. It's an interesting theory, but not one that we can really prove one way or another at this time. It's one of just six protected wreck sites in Welsh waters. So I think you could say it's fairly significant. It's just one of six special ones. Um, and having spent so much time learning about the wreck recently and meeting people who spent their lives working on it, and then having had the opportunity to visit it on fieldwork, I think it's rather special and quite significant too. Definitely. And it's such a fascinating story that the man who discovered um, the original signs of the wreck was able to be so involved in the process of then... Um, kind of unearthing it and um, conserving it, which is fantastic. Yeah, groups like the KNS group who sort of came together to find these wrecks that were found in the early days of the Protection of Wrecks Act, they were a unique breed of diver who were focused, committed and had the time and skills to actually take these things forward. And we know a lot more about wrecks such as the Bronze Bell because of their work. That's fantastic to hear. I'm quite interested in the in the marble that was found on on the ship and um I think it, it makes it quite distinctive. Could you tell me a little bit more about maybe where that might have been going, what it might have been intended for? Yeah, but absolutely. To be honest, there's lots of theories out there and I have heard a thousand and one theories from lots of different people over the course of the last year. Um the marble itself is Carrara marble, so it, it fits that it was this Genoese ship that was sailing round um, up to wherever it was going. It got wrecked on the way. Um, the blocks themselves are huge. They really are they're sort of two metres long in some cases. They're, they're huge blocks. I've heard theories that it might have been going to help build uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, that it was going to the palace in Versailles and was blown hugely off course, or that it was even going over to Ireland. And 
to be honest, I don't think at this time we can say anything conclusively as to where it was going at all. It was certainly going somewhere. What I would say is if anyone wants to see the marble, you don't have to dive on the site to see it. Because if you visit Barmouth, one of the great big blocks was raised by the dive team and it was actually um, carved as part of a um, project to celebrate the millennium. Um, so a local sculptor carved it and it's, it's sat in the middle of Barmouth. So it's well worth going to see. Wow, that sounds incredible. So just in extension of the previous question, but I'd like to direct it at Julian. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the kind of trading relations that Wales would have had with other areas, with other countries at this time. In terms of that ship, it's really difficult to fit it into what we understand about, I suppose, Welsh trade at that point, because we're, we're in a period, I mean, if we believe Lewis Morris's chart of sort of 1709 of this ship being lost, and I think a few people have commented that the chances of two ships with a cargo of marble being lost in almost exactly the same place um, are from you know this kind of date are really really slim so the the ship on the chart is probably almost certainly the you know the bronze bell wreck how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it's a 700-ton ship. It's clearly really heavily armed, uh, as a lot of merchant ships were at that time. And I think, bear in mind, it's sailing from northern Italy, from Genoa, so it's got to sail out of the western Mediterranean past the Know, the famed Barbary pirates and up up the western sort of approaches, so you can understand why it is having um, this extent of armament on it. But it's yeah, it's way bigger than you know the what we understand of the sort of the Welsh trading ships at that time, which are mostly operating out of smallish sort of ports. 
um, and mostly engaged in kind of coastal trade, maybe a little bit of trade of materials across to Ireland, um, corn, stone, uh, coal, these kind of things are going to places like Dublin and, and Bristol and agricultural products. So the, the Wales is not a, you know, it's, it's not a place at this point in time that is producing vast amounts of um, exotic material or, or neither are there places that are bringing that material in. But as in the 18th, the later 18th and 19th century, there's tons and tons of things going past Wales because everybody going to Dublin and Liverpool and you know maybe a bit further north up to places like Lancaster, maybe Glasgow, um, are going up the Irish Sea. So the chances of ships sort of ending up on the Welsh coast in a in a period before you know the lighthouses at the Smalls are built and this kind of thing is quite you know, quite strong, I would think. So. I, I think it's one of these vessels that is sort of has sailed into the Welsh coast by accident and has, you know, tragically got sort of stuck, if you like, in the in the in the top corner of Cardigan Bay there, um, in amongst St Patrick's Causeway. And as Alison says, I think well, finding where you know the origins of the ship somewhere in Genoa, there's probably an old historical document of a shipping record from this period. You know, it's just about recent enough that we might expect this kind of thing to survive. That'll say you know, this consignment of stuff was was shipped off somewhere, maybe to London. I mean, I find it really interesting on the chart that the rest of the cargo is paper um, because some of the early understandings of the site before the chart was found um, was that it was quite a small ship because there were only 60 tonnes of marble and that was considered to be the whole cargo. But now we understand that the cargo was marble on the one hand and paper on the other. Now, paper's not very heavy, um, but it's quite bulky. So you could fill a ship up with you know, I say it's not heavy, um, you know, relative to marble. So you've got this big sort of bulk of stuff in the bottom of the ship as that, that's ballasting it, I guess. And then you've got the rest of this cargo. So I suppose destination wise, we've kind of got to ask, well, who who wants marble and paper um, in, you know, 1709? And it's probably not um, Putheli or Carnarvon or somewhere like that. It's, it's got to be a fairly big, you know, major city. Uh, I would have thought so. I, I think you either look at yeah, it's it's heading for Dublin or Liverpool or something like that, or there's been some kind of catastrophic navigation error and they've kind of yeah gone the wrong side of Cornwall and just got lost basically in a storm or something. And finding those kind of records and that um, those new pieces of information is that a big part of Cherish's work? Um, not not so much with the Cherish project. Um, I mean, I think the chart. In, in this case, the chart was found in, I think it was 1999. Um, it was sort of found in, in one of the archives in Gwynedd, whereas Cherish is more really sort of focused on the archaeological, you know, processes of material itself. And, and lots of the sites that are forming a big part of the Cherish project are by definition prehistoric. So there's not a huge amount of this this other material. But but I think the, the bronze bell rack is a, is a brilliant example of the sort of the meshing together of the historical material and the archaeological material and and really demonstrates why you've got to sort of balance them both together. You can't just rely on, you know, one or the other, that the two together tell you so much about um, the other half, if you like. Mm. And speaking of finding new information, I understand, Alison, that there was recently a new dive at the wreck? Yeah, so we were lucky enough to go and spend a week um, working out on the site on behalf of Cherish, uh, 
in early September this year. The site's been visited by quite a few people in the past. Um, Wessex Archaeology were there in 2004. More recently, Ian Cundy and the Malvern Archaeological Diving Unit have visited the site quite regularly. But our visit was the first to use really high-tech diver tracking equipment in combination with high-resolution multi-beam from the site. So we've been doing a lot of work recently um, using um, Sonodyne's tracking system to basically um, go and position our divers on the site alongside the multi-boom and really, really accurately tie the two things together. So there was an existing site plan for the site and it was originally hand-drawn by divers um, from that original group in the late 70s and early 80s and it's remarkably accurate. However, advances in technology have allowed us to really refine the accuracy of the site plan. And we were able to show the orientation of some of the guns was incorrect, uh, so they were facing the wrong way or they needed realigning slightly. And we've been able to really overall um, increase the accuracy overall of that site plan. Um, and as well, for the first time, we were looking at the site for indicators of climate change. We've undertaken a baseline assessment of the site for the first time to look at key features of climate change to allow future archaeologists to monitor the site and see how climate change is affecting the site uh, in years to come. We think we've identified a species that shouldn't be in Welsh waters, but we're waiting to have that confirmed at the moment. So it's, it's, it's been really good piece of work from that point of view. But we did also find a really interesting new feature that we haven't seen previously um, on any site, uh, but also hasn't been spotted on the Bronze Bell site. And it's, it's, it's a feature made up of a number of rings. There may be more that we didn't spot. And the rings are each about 70 centimetres across. Uh, we spotted three on the seabed when we were diving on the site. But when we went back through the photos afterwards, we could see that there were at least five, if not more, of these features. The visibility, I should say, on the site was really poor and it was easier to identify the features, bizarrely, on the photos than when you were diving. The rings aren't linked like chain, but they do seem to be concreted together and connected. So we're really stumped as to what this feature is. And I'd love to be able to go and see it again and actually investigate it on the seabed in future. But I did think perhaps if your listeners have any ideas, they could get in touch with us. And it might be that I can share a photo somehow for, for people to have a look at. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic idea. Um, and I was going to ask, actually, how this information and recordings of the wreck can be accessed by the public. Uh, so on the um, Cherish website, that there is a blog post and also on the Cherish YouTube page. Uh, there's a whole series of dive diaries that we recorded during the course of the week. Um, as a maritime archaeologist, I'm really lucky to be able to go underwater and see this stuff. But it's really nice to be able to give it to people who can't as well. So we've done a lot of work um during our field work, actually recording the site underwater and recording sort of interviews with the team involved. So I would suggest everybody had a, had a look at those uh, dive diaries. My final question about the, the wreck in particular is the name of the wreck, um, which is, of course, based on the bronze bell that was found. And I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners a little more about that, maybe the significance of the bell. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm not a bell expert. I think I should say that before we start. But the bell itself is really interesting. It's how the site got its name. And it's also quite beautiful. Uh, the date on the bell says 1677. And if anyone goes on uh, Sketchfab, um, you can see there's a photogrammetry model that was created by the NAS and MADU um, with some funding from CADU. So you can have an explore of the bell yourself there or you can see it in the museum in Barmouth. 
So at one time, um, the wreck was thought to be French, but the bell is one of many things that meant that view has been readjusted. So French vessels at the time often had uh, fleur-de-lis decorations on their bells, and they also had slightly different yokes. Uh, they were more like the ones used by the British Navy. So the bell from the site is much more consistent with Spanish or indeed Italian bells, which sort of fits with the marble as well. It's not clear if the bell was cast for the ship. Um, if it was, and the ship did sink in 1709, then the ship would have been 32 years old um, when it sank, which isn't impossible. Um, but there's nothing to say the bell wasn't part of the cargo, cargo or was on the ship for some other reason. We have recently been in touch with a bell foundry who we think might have made similar bells um, who are based in Italy. And we're waiting to hear back from them. And I think it would just be fantastic if we could actually locate a link to the foundry that made the bell that was located and gave the, uh, the rec site its name. So that's one for the future. Definitely. And it's great that there is still more to be found out about the wreck and still exciting things coming up for people to hear about. So thank you both very much for speaking to me today. It's been really interesting to hear about. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the fascinating work of Cherish and the Bronze Bell Wreck. We appreciate all of your support. So do go and find us on social media. Search The Mariner's Mirror Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube. I particularly loved the recent YouTube video using artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads to life. You can also get in touch and give us your thoughts on the episode via the free forum on the Society for Nautical Research website, or by leaving us a review on iTunes. If you want to be part of the community dedicated to exploring and cherishing our maritime past, please consider joining the Society for Nautical Research for a small annual subscription. Join me and Dr Julian Whitewright next time to hear about the fascinating work of the Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historic Monuments of Wales and their collaboration with the Lloyds Register Foundation to discover more about our Welsh shipwrecks.